This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Andrea Horvath has taken back her comments uh, on the Hamilton LRT project. In an interview with the SPEC, she said that the reality is the province shouldn't be deciding on what municipalities choose to do with their transit systems and that it's important to acknowledge that the municipality order of government has these responsibilities in terms of envisioning the transit projects for their cities. She has tweeted out the following, and by the way, we've uh, got a call out. We're trying to get Andrea on the air this afternoon uh, to try to clarify all of this. So uh, when we do get in touch with her, we will, uh, of course, try to make that happen. Uh, Andrew Horbath tweeted earlier today, let me be clear, I'm 100% committed to funding the Hamilton LRT. This is the right transit solution for our city, and I'll fight uh, I'll fight like hell to make it happen. To talk more about all of this, former city councillor, city of Hamilton, Brad Clark, he is with us now. Brad, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate all this. My pleasure. So you were all obviously there during the uh, early stages of these discussions. Are you surprised that the NDP leader has come out with this discussion, uh, with this uh, point? Is it muddying the waters? Yes, the waters are very muddy right now, <laughs> and we really need to know what the NDP leader's position is. Uh, up till now, she's been really strong pro-LRT. Uh, then we had the announcement yesterday indicating that it's really the council's decision and that she would support the council if they chose to spend the money on other transit projects. And then today we have the opposite again. So we re- those are monumental backflips, by the way. <laughs> why, why even bring this up, though, Brad? I mean, is this reacting to what Doug Ford says? Uh, my assumption is that at the doors, the canvassers are hearing that the promise of Doug Ford to respect council's decision on how the money is to be used is is ringing true with voters. And so I, 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 I have to wonder whether or not the NDP leader was looking at trying to stem any bleeding that they may have uh, from her party to Doug Ford because of that issue. Now, what about walking this back? How, well, how, are, we, how are we to interpret this? Uh, that she doesn't know what she's doing. <laughs> uh, to have uh, a leader of a party make an announcement, then reverse the announcement, and then make the same announcement that she had earlier um, just leaves a lot of questions in the voters' minds. And we've seen it with all three party leaders. There has been some significant flip-flopping during this election, uh, but on this issue locally, the LRT is still an issue that is very much on everyone's mind. Uh, and it was surprising to me anyways to have her come out and say that she was going to let the city use the money for other transit. I think it's noble and a great thing, but I was surprised that she did that. So where is this going? I mean, what, uh, how big an issue is this going to be in the next election? I mean, for all intents and purposes, everybody thinks things are moving forward, and, and they appear to be. So where do, how, how big an issue do you think this is going to be? It really depends on who forms provincial government. Uh, if Doug Ford and the Tories form government, then I'm confident that you're going to have a number of city councillors rethinking their position, and it will be a major issue in the municipal election that's coming up. Um, And if the NDP win, uh, she's going to have to clarify exactly what her position is, 
because we now have two different positions, and no one knows exactly what she'd do as Premier. Do you think here Andrea Horvath kind of got caught with this question and, you know, the quote may be taken out of context, uh, or does her reply speak to that? I think her statement yesterday was unequivocal, um, and there was very little room for ambiguity. Yeah. Uh, There is more ambiguity with her statement today, uh, given that she's saying she'd fight like hell for LRT to succeed, I'm paraphrasing Scott, um, and not mentioning the local sphere of authority of the municipal council. So uh, she's kind of opened herself up unnecessarily. How are councillors viewing these comments? Um... The councillors that I've spoken to on the issue are are quite pleased that they may have an opportunity to really use the billion dollars for local improved transit, higher BRT routes, um, and fix the sewers and the roads just like was going to happen under LRT. Uh, I'm thinking that the LRT supporters on council were quite angry with um, Andrea, and I suspect that she's had an awful lot of phone calls in the last 24 hours. Uh, Has your position on LRT changed at all? I think we're overbuilding. I I, I seriously believe that. Um, I'm doubtful that it will get stopped. Uh, I think that at the end of the day, the council is going to see that, you know, $100 million has been spent, and they may have to reimburse that $100 million, so it's questionable whether or not council will actually stop it. Um, but from my perspective, we're overbuilding. We don't have the ridership for LRT. Uh, it would have been more prudent to, to build uh, bus rapid transit and improve our local transit system, and then 10 years from now, re-examine how the ridership is and where we might need higher order transit with that new and improved ridership. Why wasn't that done first then? Why does that not appeal to people like an LRT does? Well, you really have to go back and follow the story all the way forward. The LRT was a political campaign promised by Dalton McGinty in in one of his first campaigns, and it just came forward all the way as um, the solution. And when BRT was suggested, um, there was any number of reports that were trying to push BRT off the table. Um, council took the position that if we get a billion dollars and it doesn't cost us anything, fine, we'll build LRT. Yeah. But I don't think they were celebrating LRT. They wanted 100% capital funding. They got 100% capital funding, and you don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Hmm. Brad Clark has been with us, former city councillor, city of Hamilton. Brad, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. No problem, Scott. Have a great day. You too. Let's bring in former mayor of Hamilton, Larry Diani. He is with us now. Larry, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Uh, my uh, pleasure, Scott. A surprise by the comments of Andrea Horvath. Yeah, uh, very much surprised. Uh, well, which ones now? Because <laughs> let's start with the original that was in the spec. Okay, and that was a surprise because, um, you know, she's been such a strong uh, and staunch supporter of LRT. uh, And for her to then have made the comments that seemed to weaken that support uh, was was certainly surprising to me uh, and to a lot of uh, pro-LRT supporters, I might add. And I suspect that's why she walked them back this morning because there's been a lot of blowback. And so when there's blowback, 
there's also a walk back, and that's what she did. But that makes her look wishy-washy, quite frankly, on the whole issue. And people now don't know which Andrea to believe, the one that says, I'm staunchly in favor, or the one that says, yeah, but you know what, maybe not. Why even muddy the waters this way? Why even go in this direction, especially well, considering her position in the past? Right. So I suspect it has, I mean, it has all to do with, with the political landscape right now, right? And Doug Ford came in uh, a while ago now and said the same thing. He said, look, uh, Hamilton, if you want the LRG, you can have it. If you want something else, you can have that as well, and I'll give you all that money. And so, uh, and, and that got some traction uh, maybe with, uh, with some folks uh, in the city and certainly some councillors who seem to themselves walk back the process. And so Andrea, who is, uh, you know, nipping at uh, Ford's heels politically across the province, uh, is looking at a way of, uh, of perhaps taking some of that ground away from Doug Ford. And so she's placed herself on, on an even, at least she did, when she in- indicated that the money could be used for other things, uh, on an even playing field as Doug Ford. Uh, and uh, and uh, would erode some of his support, perhaps. I think that must have been some of the logic. Uh, and however, it was very short-lived because now she's back to saying, "No, she's going to be the champion, uh, fighting like hell for LRT." So, as I said initially, it uh, it weakens her position because now. They, they're not 100% sure which Andrea to believe. Many said when Doug Ford suggested this, she can't do this. It's not like there's a, a pot of billion dollars sitting around here waiting to give it to whoever wants it and, and to use for whatever uh, purpose. So how, how is Andrea going to do it if Doug can't? Well, look, governments can do whatever they want to do. Uh, if you know they use the same process, uh, or at least they use a, an appropriate process and, and go through the legislature, or use their their authority if they're in office. So it probably can be done in some way. Uh, however, you're right. I mean that 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 pot of money that people envision would be there uh, for um, to, to use in other than LRT processes isn't necessarily there because it's a capital uh, allocation that would uh, be uh, um, you know used as the project designated as being is being built uh, and so a metrolinks which is the funding partner to the government uh would do that sort of funding and metrolinks uh, is not responsible for giving money to projects that are beyond its mandate and that's what uh some of the critics of uh, of Doug Ford have said and i guess now andrea uh, or at least andrea uh, you know the other day uh, have said that that money is just not there to reallocate. However, as I said, government, you know, they control the purse strings, and if they use the right processes, they can make that allocation as well, quite apart from Metrolinx. How do those on city council view this? What does this do for the Hamilton discussion? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, it's never been a, a 100% clear uh, uh, process as to where council is on any given day. So let's let's deal with what we know. We know that council has approved uh, the LRT project. We know that uh, uh, staff is implementing that approval, uh, Metrolinx at least, uh, is implementing that approval in uh, coordination with city staff, one would hope. We know that money has been spent, a lot of money, and depending on which figure you count, whether it's the money that's already been spent or the money that's been spent and 
uh, and or allocated to be spent. We're looking at, you know, uh, north of $100 million, apparently. So, so we know that. We also know that there's a, a, uh, there are some other processes that have to come forward uh, that may provide an off-ramp. Uh, unlikely as that might be given the expenditures that have already happened. Uh, council could always, you know, put a stop to it because at the end of the day, nothing has happened on the ground in terms of uh, the construction aspect of it. Although uh, we also know that, uh, you know, they're in the process of, uh, of uh, trying to figure out who the builder will be. So those contracts, I understand, or at least the RFPs have, have been let out for those as well. So we know all of that, but there is also the political side of it, which is the provincial election and which government comes in and what will they do? Might they themselves pull the plug um, or might council, you know, become weak need uh, and uh, go in another direction? And then there's a municipal election as well, where this is sure to figure as a uh, certainly a, a point of debate, um, depending on which candidates step up and what their positions will be. So all of those uh, simply muddy the waters a little bit and make it kind of exciting for those of us who are interested in watching the political process unfold, but uh, not good uh, if your staff trying to implement what council and other levels of government want you to do if uh, there's some wavering on the part of those partners as well. Uh, could these comments prove to be a game changer? I'm sorry, say that again? Could these comments prove to be a game changer? Well, I, I think, you know, the fact that Andrea walked back the comments um, so quickly uh, this morning after she said them uh, to people's surprise uh, at the editorial board uh, indicates, and, you know, uh, leaders especially, but, uh, but parties during elections, they pay very close attention to the public mood. There's all kinds of polling being done, I'm sure, all sorts of focus groups perhaps. Um, uh, responding to, to the way things uh, go, and the candidates uh, for the writings themselves provide feedback to the leader's office. And the fact that Andrea walked it back so quickly means that it did change some uh, aspect of, of uh, what people were saying at the door for the NDP here. Whether her walk back is sufficient to stop that or whether it's simply created now some doubt in people's minds if they care about this project uh, is another matter. Uh, however, there's another side to that coin as well. The fact that she's now created some confusion about it, I mean, sometimes people read into things what they want to read into them. Hmm. And so if those who don't like the project think that Andrea's being uh, flexible on it, you know, it may garner some support for her. Sure. Those who are dead set on the project and thought that Andrea was on side, uh, may now walk away from it. So who knows at the end of the day whether it's a plus or a minus. Good point. It's certainly confusing. Larry Deani has been with us, former mayor of city of Hamilton. Larry, as always, thanks for the comments. Much appreciated. My pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. This is uh, quite fascinating. Uh, my producer Liz brought this to my attention because, you know, I'm an old guy. And, and was, was talking about uh, this video, uh, which we saw a couple of weeks back, by a Childish Gambino. It's called This is America. Very poignant uh, piece. Uh, and, and in the background, as you're watching this video, you're seeing all sorts of portrayals of some of the issues that are uh, troubling 
um, countries all around the world, I guess, not only in, just in America. Uh, fast forward to a, uh, a YouTuber originally from Hamilton named Nicole Arbor. She basically did a, um, a, a ripoff, a parody, a parody of the piece that uh, Childish Gambino had done, except instead of taking it as um, with the black mantra, instead made it about women's issues. And there's been a lot of backlash uh, in regard to this. Uh, first, we're going to play you, and this is hard to see without the visuals, so Lisa's going to put it up on, uh, on our Facebook and Twitter pages. It's hard to see without the visual, but here's, we're going to play uh, Childish Gambino's, the original version first, then Nicole's. Here's the original. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Look how I'm living now. Police be tripping now. Yeah, this is America. Guns in my area. I got the strap. I gotta carry them. Yeah, yeah, I'ma go into this. Yeah, yeah, this is Gorilla. Yeah, yeah, I'ma go get the bag. Yeah, yeah, or I'ma get the pad. Yeah, yeah, I'm so cold like yeah. All right, so it's difficult to tell without seeing the visual there. Now we're going to run Nicole's version of this. This is America. Don't catch you climbing up. Don't catch you climbing up. Cause don't get you slipping up. Hey, come on. This is America. We'll say North America. Look how we living now. The boys will be tripping now. All right, let's bring in, again, tough to see and, and appreciate this without seeing the visual. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant, Huffington Post, Canada.com, PR Daily contributor, and of course here, where we love to have her. Alyssa Freeman, thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. That's so nice. What a nice introduction. There you know. Very contentious topic we're about to talk about. I have a feeling we may not agree with this one. We may not agree on this one, Alyssa. It may be one, it may be one of those. I'm rolling up my sleeves. So what are your thoughts uh, on the first and the second? Okay. Well, I really did like the first one. I thought that Childish Gambino, I thought it was really breakthrough creatively. Um, it had a message. You know, here's something going on, yet there's all this violence going on around them. So, you know, the um, contradiction in trying to live a peaceful life and have fun, and yet you've got armed police running around um, in a sort of like a like a bombed out warehouse. Uh, I, I thought I thought it was very impactful. Yeah, we should yeah. describe what this looks like really quickly. It's him doing his rap, and in the background, he's in a giant vacant warehouse, but there's all yeah. these sort of little scenes going on behind him being acted out, uh, right. some very visual, very uh, violent. And, and, and that sort of, you really have to watch the video a couple of times to see all that's going on around him. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, it's a real seminal work, to be quite honest. And, yeah. you know, what it does is that it shows how we try to sugarcoat what goes on around us by let's, let's just pump up all the good stuff and let's just put all, push all that bad stuff that occurs every day in our lives and we're just supposed to ignore it. So that, that to me, was sort of the, the essence behind the video. That was, that was my interpretation of it. So then we moved to Nicole Arbor. And what she does is, I mean, you know, I think the big thing about this, Scott, is that it comes under the category of, cultural appropriation and i think that's where you and i may go at loggerheads i mean i don't know but i'm 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 guessing that's where you're going so she takes the childish cambino film and or video and she appropriates it to women's issues and some people say it's just a bit of a a whitewashing 
Um, although I watched the whole video all the way through, and what she talks about are all sorts of different women's issues where she feels that women are oppressed, whether it's breastfeeding in public, whether you have a disability, whether it's the way you look, whether it's the way you're ignored. So in isolation, I can look at that video and I can think, oh, you know what? She did a pretty good job. However, when we juxtapose it to This Is America and all the contentious issues that it stands for, people are angry and people are slighted. Why? I think that they feel that they've turned this into a, you know, that was a very loaded one word question, Scott. <laughs> but um, I got a million of those. <laughs> I know. I feel that they, from what I'm reading, is that people feel that this has been turned into a black versus white issue. Now, she did issue um, an apology saying that this was her philosophy behind the video, what she was trying to do. She apologizes that, indeed, if this was, um, you know, if this, that people felt that she was trying to make this a black versus white issue, that was not her intent. But what she was trying to do was build on the popularity and the message of Childish Gambino's This Is America into her own message. So that seems to be where people are angry. And, and, and you know, before I came on, I quickly went through the um, the tweets. And I have to say that some of them are quite vitriolic towards her. And it's, um, but to me, this was very calculated on her part. Very, of very course calculated. it is. It's just like Saturday Night Live is. Well, Exactly. So Saturday Night Live did the same thing. They would also, you know, uh, suffer the backlash that this has suffered. So there's the... So does that mean we prioritize between gender and race as to which of the problems are bigger? No. I think that the, the sticking point, the wedge issue here, Scott is that this is cultural appropriation. And so we've been hearing a lot about that, right? You know, we've been hearing about it when yeah. people um, culturally appropriate the, it seems to be a the very, idea it, from it, an artist. It seems okay? to be a convenient term to use, though. Well, it's becoming, sometimes it's convenient, kind of like Me Too, kind of like any of these movements, and we've talked about this. Some of these, sometimes when people appropriate the movement for their own um, message, sometimes it fits and sometimes it doesn't. So we have first heard this with the First Nations and Indigenous peoples when there was an art exhibit in Toronto, and they felt that the woman who was presenting her art, who was not a First Nations, had culturally appropriated um, an Indigenous artist uh, for herself and for her own gain, and there would be no benefit back to the um, Indigenous culture. The same thing with this. People feel that here is a privileged white woman who has taken um, a philosophy and a reality of uh, black Americans and then twisted it on its head to create, to provide backing for her own message. So, you know, when we talk about cultural appropriation, if when I first heard this, I'm like, okay, well, people have been imitating the Stones forever. You know, people have been imitating, you know. The Stones were imitating, you know, the Stones were imitating Chuck Berry and Fats Domino. Well, there's there, cultural appropriation. There's cultural appropriation. Rock and roll is cultural appropriation. Exactly. So Eminem, so excuse me, Eminem, the rap artist, is that not cultural appropriation? Yes. If you look at it under that category, if I under that category. If I'm standing up at a hockey game and I start singing French, I'm not French. I'm not from Quebec. I don't even speak French. Is that cultural appropriation? 
At what point does cultural appropriation? Hang on a sec. What? At what point does cultural appropriation not be appreciation? When it delves into disrespect. So what, if you're what, saying, if you sing the national anthem, which I do, mm-hmm. and with my one or two lines in the, uh, English and French, right? I just feel that that's being respectful. How come you're? Cultures. Well, yeah, you're celebrating the culture. Well, you're respecting the I culture. How school, is so. she being disrespectful to this? How is she being disrespectful with this parody? Especially this is 100% when, hundred percent, especially bad timing, especially oh, when. Timing. Especially when, especially when it's such an, it's not like she's making a mockery of this. This is a serious piece. It's not, I looked at it and saw it through the same lens as I saw the first one. Both, both have a point. One's a ripoff, of course. One is, you know, totally riding on the coattails of another. But that's not the debate here. The debate is whether it's politically correct or not. And I think we're we're on a very slippery slope here. The debate is whether she's diminishing the black experience of African-Americans with her video. That is the debate. So when you start your own video about women's issues or generally white women's issues or women of privileges issues with the exact chorus and the exact words from Childish Gambino's music, you know, This Is America. You know, she used This Is America sort of as her premise. I mean, yes, this is, you know. Then she said This Is North America. Well, you know, I don't think she's saying that black lives don't matter, but what she's trying to say is all lives matter, but that doesn't sit well with people who feel, you know what, you had a message, you could have figured it out and done it more in, in, in your own creative way rather than ripping it off. And cultural appropriation has taken on a whole new narrative in, started in 2017, like in a big way. We've always discussed it, but it's never sort of been sort of rumbling. And now it's absolutely erupted as, a, as no-go territory. Then every white rapper must now stand down. And I don't think that's a bad idea. Because <laughs> I think I don't know. that to me, that's the biggest I cultural think. appropriation there is. It's like, my goodness, you're, you know, you're, you're killing this music. Uh, anyway, uh, I mean, white guys singing rap. Um, but how is that not the same thing? I think that. I mean, my goodness, I'm listening, I can see a country band that's now rapping. How is that not cultural appropriation? Well, it is now. It's recognized for what it is. So how come so, it's okay this way, but it's not okay that way? And let me ask you another question. Could this also because, be because generally Nicole Arbor is a controversial figure and a lot of people don't like her anyway in the last video she did in regard to fat people? I'm, I'm, whenever I'm sitting with people in the newsroom and we're talking about this and debating it, it keeps coming back to that. It's like, well, you don't like the person. That's not what we're talking about here. You know, first of all, you know, she's very strategic, Nicole Arbor. She knows what she's doing. She's brilliant. She's going to get um, any attention. She has to be controversial. And she's got to have a very thick skin. And if she doesn't have a thick skin, especially with the backlash and people telling her that perhaps you should die or take your own life, like these are some of the tweets that I'm reading. I mean, I find those to be problematic. That's what comedians do. Is this any different than than, uh, Nancy Griffith uh, taking the head of Trump and doing whatever she did and facing the backlash? Well, and look what happened to her career. Well, I didn't think she so, was that funny anyway. Well, but that's another issue. I mean, she, she called herself on the D-list, and I don't think that was too far from the truth. But I feel that when cultural appropriation crosses the line in terms of people's sensitivities, so when, you're, when they feel that you're diminishing the black experience, or for example, I know this is a silly example. I was going through my Instagram feed, and I saw that one of the real housewives in Beverly Hills, Lisa Rinna, was like happy Cinco de Mayo, and she dressed herself up 
as a very as a caricature of someone from Mexico. So she had a long mustache, she put on a sombrero, she put on a colorful scarf. And I even looked at that, Scott, and I thought, you know what? This is a parody. This is not a heartfelt sentiment, happy Cinco de Mayo, You're trying to make people laugh at the expense of another culture. So I guess, you know, the thing is, is that are we so we can't we make fun of anything anymore? I don't think she's making. See, here's the difference. I don't think this is comedy. I think this is a a poignant piece put forth by a comedian. I don't think that this is done as a lark. I don't see this as funny. I see this as a as a piece that, that, that obviously she's ripped off. She can't take any creative credit for that. But again, if this is cultural appropriation, so is every form of music. And and this is a this is a very sort of murky and interesting time that we are in. And I think right now, settle very, down, everybody. Well, you know, there's right now, there's there's a very small but vocal minority who are sort of banging the drum on this, and and they're doing a good job of getting their message out there. And I think that there is merit to having the discussion about what is outright theft of an idea, what is cultural appropriation, and what is, you know, where does it not cross the line? And right now, I have to say that it's all gray. Like, I wish I could say to you, there's a black, there's a white, there's a gray. I don't think there is right now. And I think that, you know, some people say that people are overly sensitive. Some people say that people are not sensitive enough. I can't even foresee right now where it's going to land, except that um, if you're an artist and you're looking to create a stir, then cultural appropriation is the way to go. Mm. I don't know. I think both bring it, uh, bring attention to issues that need uh, attention brought to them. We'll leave it at that, Alyssa. We're right out of time. Thanks so much for yours, and have yourself a great weekend. And you too, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Research say that Canadians living in big cities are not as happy as those living in rural towns. Do you think this has got something to do with traffic? Uh, This is according to a study at McGill University and the Vancouver School of Economics. Uh, And, you know, it's interesting, this on the heels of uh, a StatsCan study that was out earlier on in the week, perhaps last week, where it was revealed that millennials, the biggest segment of the population, leaving Toronto and at an astronomical rate. People are just getting out. They'll stay there in their 20s and and what have you and live the life and in the exciting times of a big city, whether it's Vancouver, Toronto or Montreal. Um, But then once they get to a certain point in their lives, usually around 30, they're starting to bolt. And they just don't want any part of the big city that we've been building for the last uh, 20 years. We're seeing this in Hamilton as people are living the, the GTA to, to come here and even points into Kitchener and Brantford and, and Grimsby and such. Um, pe- people just don't want to live and work in a city anymore and uh, are, are trying to find employment outside so they don't have to be a part of it. And this isn't about 
going to bedroom communities and then traveling into the bigger cities for employment, these are people that are trying to find employment outside of the larger cities, which is obviously difficult. But cities like Hamilton and Kitchener, Peterborough uh, and such, I mean, there is industry there that is growing again and seems to be driving a lot of this. Let's bring in Theo Sellis, registered family therapist, president of Integrity Works. He's with us now. Theo, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Well, you're welcome. How are you? I'm doing well. And you? I'm doing great, thank you. Are you? Su- I don't live in the city, so I'm happy. Are you a rural person? I am, and I've never changed it. How long have you been a rural person? Well, I grew up being a rural person. It's hard for me to say rural. But yeah. I, I grew up being that way, uh, and then had to kind of move in. And I work in the city a lot. I, I teach, so I have to drive yeah. in. But I, I just would not be able to live there. I can't, couldn't imagine doing so. What is it about the lifestyle that attracts you? Well, I, I think uh, you did mention traffic. That's a that's a pretty big factor, right? Uh, but you know, I don't think a lot of people dream of retiring to the city. I think that they <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point, uh, right? So, what's that about? And I think people dream of being able to go to a quiet place, lots of greenery, healthier living, sense that you're connected to a smaller town or a smaller environment. It's hard to feel connected to other people when you are a very little fish in a big pond. Uh, and relationships are really significant to us. We, we, for our happiness, for our well-being, we do need to have a sense that we're connected to other people, that we're known by other people. It's pretty hard to feel known uh, when you're living in a very large city where people may be uh, a little bit uh, less connected and uh, more kind of like, seems like you're in the middle of a whole pile of strangers. Uh, everyone going their way very quickly. Uh, so the idea of living in a smaller environment where people get to know you, you get to know them. It's a profound experience being known by another person, right? People don't like being isolated or lonely, and so I think there's more of a chance that you'll feel connected in a smaller town. Plus, you don't have to deal with the pollution and the traffic and the concrete, and it's all beautiful and green. We, you know, we've often said and we've heard this, and maybe this is an old phrase now, but, you know, in small towns, everybody knows your business. Oh, I don't like that. I'm getting out of that. Whereas now, it seems that the pendulum swung the other way. Even in suburbia, not even so much big cities, a lot of people don't even know who's living next to them. Yeah, and I think that that, that can work for a little while, but people do end up feeling isolated. People do feel lonely, and, and they do want to have a sense that they are someone in someone else's life, that they're just not living in their own life. So uh, on one level, yeah, we, I mean, people vary. Like there are people who are like quite content on, on uh, not being known. They like the anonymity that the city might, might provide. Uh, they don't like living in a small town because they don't want people to know their name. But generally speaking, people, um, people like this sense of, you know, like they're part of a community. Community is very important. And we talked a little bit about this earlier on and uh, like there were some of the recent tragedies and how important it was to have community rally around, uh, have a sense that uh, you're not alone when you're feeling when you're facing facing trauma. So I think that's, that's important to people. You know, you bring up a, a valid point, and I'm going to make a comparison here, and I'm not sure it's fair or not. Um, but we remembered, in, we were discussing the Humboldt tragedy yeah. way back when. Um, we certainly know how, how that gripped the country. That seemed to grip the country more than the van attack in, in Toronto. Is that just me, or did you sense that? Well, I, I, think, uh, I think that was... I think that I sense that as well. I, I think there was a, a, a kind of a difference between those two, and I'm not exactly sure what it was. Um, because each one equally as tragic. You know, each one, you know, defenseless victims here. Um, yeah. One was an accident, one wasn't. 
you know, does that play a factor in this? Or is it to, and, and obviously what I'm trying to draw here is, is there a comparison between ones in a small town, ones in a big city? It, it could be. Um, maybe, you know, maybe there's a real violation of like these things that are supposed to happen in a small town. Maybe the image of all, all young people, a, a busload of young people and sort of embodying in the innocence of youth and hockey and it's just like that's supposed to be really safe, possibly. And maybe we expect, well, crazy crap can happen in cities, but it's maybe it's just overwhelmingly offensive to us to have that happen in a small town. I mean, maybe that was maybe that was part of it. Having said that, I think people did rally around. You know, in, in the city, I think Toronto really did yeah, come yeah. together oh, and, sure. and, and rally around. So, um, I'm and not I don't sure. mean to diminish that. No, and, I, and I'm not sure. But, I, you know, to be honest with you, to answer your question, I did have a sense of that, and I, I wouldn't be able to put my finger on it, though. Hmm. Are times changing? It seemed, you know, for, uh, you know, I'm a guy who's 50 now. I remember when Canada wasn't that big and, and the cities weren't that big. The, you know, even Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal. I remember when Montreal was the biggest city in Canada. Uh, certainly not the case anymore. Uh, that being said, we, you know, these cities have certainly become gone from large cities to, to, to major cities. Uh, and it seems that the politics and, and the lifestyle in southern Ontario anyway was to bring more into the city, stack us up like cordwood. Is the pendulum swinging back on that? And again, I, I go back to a, a StatsCan study uh, earlier in the week that said the younger generation is leaving Toronto in, in droves. But, you know, I don't think that we can overlook economics either. Like, I speak yeah. with my students um, who are graduating or about to graduate from college or from university. And, um, and I ask them, like, you know, I get to know them and ask them where they want to live and what they want to do. And it's not like they don't want to live in Toronto or they don't enjoy living in Toronto. But when they think about having the future, finding jobs and then being able to afford living, uh, like buying a house, like the whole idea of, like, having your own place, it's such a pipe dream in Toronto at this point in time. My students just roll their eyes. One of the reasons they're fleeing the cities is just because they can't imagine being able to put down roots uh, and be able to afford living there. So I, I think that's a big factor for them. What about stress levels? Can you not live in beautiful downtown uh, city, a utopia somewhere, and, and not have a stressless life? Or is it just the hustle and bustle that embraces a city like this? Well, people aren't helpless around their happiness either. There's things that they can do to be able to find happiness no matter where they live. So actually one of the one of the indicators of someone who isn't particularly happy is that they rely a lot on external factors to determine whether they're okay, whether they're happy. And so there's actually a lot of research on happiness. So if you want to be a happy person, one of the first things that you can do in order to be a happy person uh, is actually do things for other people. So in the city, there are opportunities to volunteer uh, connect with your community and do something, give something of your time, and that'll help you feel connected. And just the act of being involved in some sort of a charitable process seems to lift people's experience, lifts, lifts people's spirits. Uh, so if you do things for other people, you tend to be happier. If you take your time at the end of every day to think about two or three things that you are really appreciative of, you become more intentional. You start looking for things in your life that you feel more positive and optimistic about. And if you have a like, sense of meaning in your life, like there's a reason for you being here, some sort of overall purpose, you can be happy. So you can develop these skills, these tools, these mindsets, whether you're in the country or in the city. What about interaction with other humans? How important is this? How has social media played a role here? Is that pendulum swinging back where instead of looking at a device, now we're looking into each other's face? I mean, that has to be coming. I haven't seen that yet. I still (laughs) strive to get my students to look me in the face. 
uh, I think that that might come. I would hope that would come because it's such a profoundly necessary thing. But there's research now looking at um, uh, children developing attachment issues. Uh, in yeah. other words, not feeling securely attached to their parents. And one of the main reasons is that you watch, they do these studies of these little infants who are trying, desperately trying to get their parents' attention uh, to make eye contact, and they're not yeah. getting that eye contact. So they're developing uh, attention span issues, attachment issues, because they're not getting that human connection. I heard even the same thing in regard to speech patterns. As kids make noise and play with their mouths and try to make noises, they're looking at you and watching you speak, and that yeah. and, and they're falling behind in their speech uh, vocabulary and development because they're not seeing, there's not enough interaction face-to-face. Yeah, that's for sure. So that speech is mirrored. So the infants are always looking for feedback. They're making noises, hearing how you respond, and then responding back and forth. So without that connection, that, that possibility is there. So, but then again, that can happen in the country as well. The city people, you know, pick the devices everywhere, everywhere they go. So I don't think that's necessarily going to be linked just to the city issues. What about how much we try to cram in a day? Um, it seems that things are more laid back in a rural town, a rural setting. There's not as much to do. Life just travels slower. Um, most of us, we get up, we got somewhere to be, we got something, you know, da 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 You get on the treadmill and the, you know, the, the routine starts. Is there less of a routine rurally or is it just less of it and more time to breathe? Well, I'll talk to the farmers that I go. They'll say there's a lot of time, there's a lot of routine and a lot of things to do. So yeah, busy. good point. The, the difference is, um, the difference is that the pace might be slower, which allows people to have some time to reflect and kind of feel calm and think about their lives a little bit and have some sort of sense of control over their lives around the decisions that they make. Whereas people who are running around from deadline to deadline. Having a commute. I mean, again, it also depends on whether you live and work in this in 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 uh, rural area area as well. Because if you're commuting, you can live in this. You can live in the country, but if you have a commute a long ways into the city and have to commute a long ways back, I'm not sure the benefits of the rural community are yeah. really going to get to you. But for sure, if you have one of the things that we know about happiness and contentment is that uh, people who have happiness and contentment seem to be able to find some kind of meaning in their life. You know, there's a there's time to kind of reflect on, oh, what, what does it all mean? What does it all matter? There's a little bit of time of almost mindfulness or what do you call it, mindfulness and meditation or just the ability to slow down and kind of reflect on yourself and why you're doing what you're doing. Is this important to you? And how are you connected to other people and how are they feeling? And say hi to them, stop a little bit. If you don't have that, if you are running around and you don't have that, you're going to lose that ability to have some sort of sense of meaningful and purpose because you're, all you're doing is reacting, reacting, reacting. And that makes you always in that crisis mode because you're always responding to some sort of stimulus that gets you to react. So you always have to be kind of like up all the time. And there's no way of being able to relax from that except for when you collapse at home just long enough to be able to do it all over again the next day. How do you take the time to appreciate what's around you? And I think I've talked to you about this example before. I remember coming home from the cottage one time with my brother-in-law, and I'm like, just, let's get home, let's get home, let's get home, let's get home. And all of a sudden, he just pulls off the road and stops. Like, what the hell are you doing? Look at these rapids. We've got to stop. And I always joke with my wife, it's stopping, the phrase for us was stopping to smell the rapids as opposed to the roses. And, and you know, it's like, what are you doing? It's like, look at this. This is just amazing. And I'm like, yeah, all right. I pass it every week. Let's go. And you know what? I have passed it every week for many years, and I've never done that. Why do I appreciate that more now than I ever did? <laughs> well, that's two questions. You'll have to spend an hour with me for me to help you. That's right. I think you're going to charge me for that latter question. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the first question you asked 
it's one of those questions that people know the answer to. So how do we do it? You just And then you ended up describing a, an incident where your brother did it. That's how you do it. How do you go about finding meaning in your life, slowing down? You actually have to do it. And so people are really uh, good at being able to come up with these kind of ideas. If you go online, you can see all these wonderful slogans about, you know, taking some time and appreciating there's pictures of sunsets and kittens. And people look at that and they, let, they click on it and they go, like, yeah, that's nice. And then they rush off again, right? It's not, it's really not that complicated as long as you have the time to do it. So if you have that time, in other words, if you have like a bunch of kids and you got this job and then your partner has a job and you got all these appointments running around, then taking that time to stop and look may actually add more stress to your life because you're, oh my God, I got to get going, right? All these things I'm not being able to, all the deadlines I'm not going to be able to meet, all these appointments I've got to keep. But if you can possibly downsize a little bit, maybe not have the greatest things in your life. Maybe not we've worried so much about the best car, the biggest house, competing with other people. If you if you kind of start seeing what's more important in life than material things, and you start putting less emphasis on the material things and more on your health and on your relationships and taking time to breathe and acknowledge how you feel and checking with other people and what they're doing and to see the world around you, your stress levels will go down. What about religion or spirituality? Are, are people who have a strong religious belief at an advantage here? Well, they could be, although I know some people who... Maybe get stressed out about their religion, yeah. <laughs> very tormented by all the terrible things that could happen yeah. to them if they're not behaving the right way and all that kind of stuff. So it's not religion per se. It's about, again, having some sense of meaning or purpose in life. But life isn't just kind of a random series of events and you get up and then you do it all over again the next day kind of thing. But there's some sort of explanation or purpose. Like, what, what is life all about to you? Like, why bother? You know, if you can't answer that question, like, why do I bother get up and work and provide for my family? And, like, what's the point other than just keeping us alive? And if it just becomes about that, then it becomes like, you know, that's kind of like a rat race kind of thing. But if you have an overall sense of purpose in your life, some sort of sense of what life is all about, you know, maybe life is just about being able to have the ability to make a connection or make a difference in someone else's life. Like maybe your life isn't just about you, but about uh, whether or not you can put a smile on someone else's face. Hmm. If, you, if you decide that uh, every day you're going to help someone smile at least once, now you've got a purpose in your life. You hmm. go, like, that's kind of cool. I can make an impact. And people, generally speaking, in order for them to be content and happy, they also need to have a sense that they can make an impact in the world around them, that they're not just some helpless sort of puppets, robots that are getting pushed and pulled around but they can actually make a change of some, some, some sense, some sort of little impact, some sort of little difference, usually in the lives of other people or animals or the environment or some sort of thing. Hmm. That really helps as well. Interesting you brought up animals because that explains the whole pet thing. Uh, what do students, when you're talking to your students about work-life balance, what do they say about their parents' generation? Well, they don't really talk about their parents' generation because, like, why would they care? They're pretty much focused on their generation. Right. They don't spend a lot of time going, oh, my mom and dad. But I'll tell you, um, you know, we sometimes get the idea, and millennials get this bad rap, you know, they're all so entitled, and, you know, they expect things to come mm-hmm. to them easily and all that. That is not my experience, man. I have to tell you, when I was in university, uh, I didn't, I, I had a teaching assistantship kind of thing. And I worked during the summer, uh, and then I was able to concentrate on, on school. These students, I'm going to say that the vast majority of my students have at least one, sometimes two jobs while they're going to university. And so they are working all the time, um, and they find it 
way more challenging now than, than I think our generation did in order to be able to put as much time that they need to be able to read and study for their... For and is courses. that just due to the cost of education? I think so. I yeah. think that they're really, really... I mean, they don't want to leave with, like, you know, $50,000 in debt. And so they're scraping and working. I have a lot of respect for my students when it comes to work ethics. When I hear all those millennials and whining and complaining, all that sort of thing, that's, that's not my experience with the students that I see. They're, they're, they're working hard trying to just stay afloat, not get too much in debt. And then as soon as they're out of school, hopefully they find a job, but they're trying to get out of that city so they can afford to live. Theo Sellis has been with us, registered family therapist, president of Integrity Works. Theo, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Take care of yourself, Scott. Uh, you too. Have a great weekend. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. You know, we were talking a couple of weeks ago initially about the Kilauea volcano. We were talking to experts. They were quite fascinated by it all uh, and almost had a novelty approach to it. Then, of course, it started taking and swallowing up homes and and so on and so forth and obviously has become uh, a lot more dangerous since then. Uh, We've often heard of when there is extreme weather, extreme nature conditions, there are chasers, storm chasers, tornado chasers, what have you. Why would you not think there would be a lava chaser? Well, of course, it's the same sort of thing. Why would you not have it? And of course, we do. Uh, George Karunas is with us. He's a storm chaser, a storm chaser, lava chaser, global adventurer, TV presenter, and explorer, and is with us now. George, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Oh, thank you. So how close have you been to a volcano? <laughs> I've had my boots light on fire from walking on top of lava, so pretty pretty darn close. What attracts you to this? How did you how did you how did you get the hook here? How did you get the buzz? Well, uh, for me, I started twenty years ago as a storm chaser and pursuing tornadoes and hurricanes, lightning, hail, things like that, and it just sort of became a natural progression to branch off into the other extreme forces of nature. And I visited my first volcano in Ethiopia back in two thousand five. And since then, I've been to volcanoes on pretty much every single continent all over the world, at least 25 active volcanoes, sometimes going down deep inside. And it's fascinating to see the Earth actually creating itself. So I have this tremendous curiosity for that kind of thing, science and nature. What is the biggest misconception we have about volcanoes? Um, People think that uh, they should be avoiding Hawaii right now because of the danger of these volcanoes, but... Uh, Kilauea is what we call an effusive volcano. It doesn't have very big explosions like Mount St. Helens. I mean, we've had a few smaller explosions recently, but um, there's no reason to not go to uh, Honolulu or Maui or places like that right now at all. So it's really not as dangerous as you might think. Talk about the difference in this volcano. As you said, you know, normally when we think of volcanoes, we think of explosion and something coming out of the top. This with fissures all the way sort of down the hill. Uh, this almost seems mm, scarier because you don't know when where one of these is going to erupt and all of a sudden come out. Yeah, well, exactly. That's the unpredictability of it. Uh, when Hawaii had that big earthquake, the lake of lava at the summit of Kilauea drained, and of course all that liquid rock has to go somewhere. So it ends up in the internal plumbing underneath the, the volcano, under the island, and then it's been coming up in the Leilani neighborhood in the, in the uh, appearance of these fissures, these cracks with these fountains of lava coming out. And then the recent explosions we've had over the past couple of days have been instances of that lava interacting with groundwater. And, of course, it flashes to steam, and the steam has to expand violently, and that's what's causing some of these explosions. So we, because of the style of eruption, we're getting a mixed bag of, uh, of effects. 
I would guess there are, and I don't know, but I would just think there would be more attracted to a volcano than perhaps a tornado. I could see people running the other way, whereas a volcano in some strange way may lure you to it. Um, uh, What are the dangers of doing this? Uh, Well, there there are numerous. Uh, The lava is actually one of the least dangerous parts of the volcano. Uh, it tends to move very slowly. For example, in Kilauea right now, you can walk faster than the lava is flowing. You could, you could set up your lawn chair and watch the lava consume your house. I mean, right. it, that 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 slow. But there are other concerns. You can actually have methane explosions where the vegetation is being burned ahead of the lava flow, so you can be injured by these. There's gases like carbon dioxide, sulfur dioxide, and uh, there's a handful of different gases that can be dangerous or deadly. Talk um, about ex- that for a little bit, because we've yeah. seen people walking around these fissures and such. What, it, must, it must be a very powerful stench there. It is, absolutely. And there's two main stinks <laughs> that come from volcanoes. There's the sulfur dioxide gas, which smells like uh, a, a, a lit match, that right. sulfurous brimstone kind of smell. And then there's hydrogen sulfide, and that smells more like rotten eggs. Yeah. So both of those, uh, whenever I encounter those, that, that tells me that I, there's activity nearby. And I have gas masks that help protect me when I'm in some of those situations, but still that protection only goes so far. And when it rains through that gas cloud, the rain turns into a very potent sulfuric acid. Mm. So you can have acid rain that will corrode any metal that you have. It'll burn your eyes and sting your skin. So how is this volcano affecting lives of those that live there? Obviously, those that live close by are in trouble. But I just even you were talking about vacationing there. Is there any reason to cancel the vacation? Well, certainly if you're a lava chaser like me, it's no, uh, <laughs> no reason to cancel whatsoever. Yeah. But, um, of course, most people are not like that. Um, the southern part of the island, of the big island, is where the national park is, and that's where the volcano is. So that's where all of the effects are going to be concentrated. So... The neighborhoods, the, the places like Kalapana and the places like Leilani, of course, they are evacuated and they're guarded by the police and National Guard right now. Um, but these explosions that are happening from the summit, the winds at this time of year tend to carry all of that ash and gas away from the main cities. So if you're in Kona, if you're in Hilo, you won't even notice that there's anything going on. You might see a, an ash cloud in the distance, perhaps, maybe. So there's not that much of a concern as long as you avoid the southern part of the Big Island. What about air travel? Well, air, there has been some disruption to air travel uh, already. Um, certainly if there's another big one of these phreatic eruptions where the groundwater is, is contacting the lava, that can affect the uh, air travel because volcanic ash and jet engines do not mix very well. What happens is the jet engine will inhale some of this volcanic ash, which is basically billions of tiny particles of cooled lava yeah and um it melts in the jet engine and then sticks to the jet engine blades and the parts inside the engine so obviously that's uh that's that's bad for uh, for a plane clearly so is chasing these things thrill or science well it can be a little bit of both i frequently work with scientists to gather samples and things like that because i'm able um, to descend down inside some of these active craters because I've got the skills and the equipment and the experience to do that. And it's less risky for me to do it than it is for them to do it. But when you're standing at the edge of a lake of lava, 1,200 feet down inside a crater that's deeper than the Empire State Building is tall, 
and you can feel that heat hitting your face, it is really an awe-inspiring sight. Talk about that a little bit, because many have talked about the heat. Uh, when you've got something like a fissure, and we're seeing neighborhoods here, and all of a sudden roads opening up and the goo's bubbling out, how close do you have to be before you feel the heat of that? Right, yeah, the, the radiant heat will hit you before you get close to that lava. Most of it wants to sort of convect straight up. Um, I've been in instances at, at Hawaii where I've been standing literally right next to a lava flow, kicked the lava flow, the crust, the, the cool part that sort of solidifies at the end, and then step on the lava flow and the liquid rock was oozing out like toothpaste. And the heat was almost unbearable against my face. Like literally I was getting second degree burns from the radiant heat. So you can, you can get a lot of uh, effects without being super, super close. And I'm guessing the ground that you're standing on so many feet or meters away from a fissure would probably have this underneath it. So the heat's not only coming from the source where it's broken through, but it's coming up underneath. You're talking about radiant heat. You're absolutely right. I have melted boots. I have melted camera bags. I, I've, I've melted the plastic on my cameras, sometimes just from setting them down. And then forgetting about them, I'm taking pictures, I go back to reach my camera bag, and the bottom has melted. So, yeah, that's, it's something you sort of forget about, but it absolutely does. Uh, advantages of volcanoes. Is there anything good here? What is well, the good? We, are, we as, as a civilization depends on volcanoes. Volcanoes created most of the land that we live on. Um, some of the most fertile soil in the world is in volcanically active areas because it's full of rich nutrients that makes for great cropland. So there are tremendous benefits. Uh, we even believe that volcanic gases helped to promote the, the, the beginnings of life on planet Earth. So we actually owe our sort of existence, our civilization, to volcanoes. However, <laughs> all of that can be revoked without, uh, without much notice. Uh, on that note, uh, many, uh, again, comparing the, the, the way this one is erupting with various fissures and such, uh, is there a chance, are people concerned, are scientists concerned that there is going to be a Big Bang? Not particularly. Um, there is a deep history of some larger explosions at Kilauea, but right now all the evidence points to more effusive eruptions and some explosions similar to the ones that we have seen, maybe a little bit bigger, but there's, there's pretty much no chance that we would see something like Mount Pinatubo or Mount St. Helens happening here in Hawaii. George, is there a website we can go to to find out what you're doing? Absolutely. You can go to FuriousEarth.com. FuriousEarth.com. What's next for you? I'm actually getting ready to go on a big volcano expedition in the South Pacific to a, a little nation called Vanuatu. And they have the highest concentration of active volcanoes in the world. I'm going to be spending seven weeks camped out at the summit of an active volcano doing multiple repels 400 meters down inside to stand next to one of the most violent pools of lava in the world. So let me ask you this, George. What's going on now on the planet? Is what's happening in Hawaii right now the most activity there is volcanically? Um, there's... About 50 volcanoes that are currently active and erupting at any given time. As um, bad or as big as this one? Well, to be honest with you, the one in Hawaii is not all that big. Um, it's getting a lot of attention because it's happening in a residential area. It's happening in the U.S. But, um, I mean, I could go to parts of the world where there are volcanoes erupting with much bigger explosions pretty much every day. 
we just don't hear about them. Places mm. like Indonesia, Vanuatu, places like that. George Karunas has been with us, Storm Chaser, Global Adventure, TV presenter and explorer. George, fascinating. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.